The following program is recorded content created by The Truth Network. Friends, do you know what's happening to our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world this very day? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I uh, received a very disturbing email from a pastor in Pakistan a couple of days ago. It's got me thinking a lot about the state of the church around the world, about persecution of believers. We've talked about this many times, but it's important we talk about it again today to stir us, to awaken us, to help us to realize the situations we have, the freedoms that we do have in America and how we respond to opposition. Michael Brown here. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Great to be with you. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to share my heart, share some scripture with you, share some things happening in different parts of the world. Uh, I'm going to take some minutes to do that. And then phone lines are going to be open like we do on Friday. Anything you want to talk about, any question you have, any subject of any kind, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. If you've listened to a past broadcast and want to take issue with me on something, if you read one of my articles and have a question or differ, by all means, all subjects, all calls, welcome today, 866-348-7884. We have one of our fire missionaries working sacrificially in Nigeria, single woman. She's been there for years, working with the poorest of the poor, helping provide better education for the children. That's what she does. She's an educator. She works with local teachers, schools. And I'm talking about where kids are sitting on the floor, where you don't even have a chalkboard, where you barely have a textbook, and just bettering their lives, improving the education. And she's outwardly, overtly, unashamedly Christian and working in Muslim villages and others and saying, hey, you know the best education is in our school. So if your kid comes, it's a Christian school, but they're sending their kids because of the better education. Uh, She's on the edge of danger many times. And let's just take a look at this headline that she sent me from Nigeria. Um, Let's get this up on the screen here. Update it. Eight killed as bandits attack church kidnap others in Kaduna. So that was, uh, that was from earlier this month, just a few days ago. Uh, she told me that in her, in her, uh, the reports that she had seen, there were 200 people killed, was murdered, cold blood, many of them Christians. This is going on on a regular basis. We, we got an urgent email from her, please pray, a pastor friend of theirs was kidnapped for ransom by by uh, Islamic terrorists, Boko Haram terrorists, whoever they were exactly, and to pray for his safe return and trying to work out the details to get him back. And then she emails a few days later, thank God he's back. He's got a gash in his head. He's missing a few fingers, but he's good. It's like, that's that's good. That's Yeah, he's not dead. He wasn't killed. Just gash in his head, missing a few fingers. And that was a great victory. And they're going on holding on to their faith. So I, I get this email from a pastor in Pakistan, and I, I met this brother when he was in the States a few years ago. He's got a thriving church there. 
He had written a book about some of the blasphemy laws and how they are used against Christians. Basically, you just make an accusation that a Christian blasphemed Muhammad, that they spoke against the Quran. You get someone else to corroborate that, and the, the Christians have very few rights, especially in more rural areas and certain parts of the country, and that's it. You're gone. You're, you're going to be sentenced. You're going to be found guilty. You're going to be thrown in prison. You might be killed. It's, it's just a very difficult situation. So on the one hand, they have certain liberties. On the other hand, there's constant persecution that they deal with. He wrote a book about it that I endorsed. So he emails me the other day. I'm not telling you where he is in Pakistan for obvious reasons. And he said, please pray, please pray. He said, a young lady in our church, just 16 years old, she was just kidnapped by Muslims for conversion. So, so what does that mean? They will kidnap, he said, it's 25 to 30 girls a month in the country are getting kidnapped. So based on a daily basis, Christian girls, some Muslim guy wants to marry them for whatever reason they, they want them, kidnap them, and then either threaten to harm their family or them and force them to convert. And then they appear before the court and say, I'm now a Muslim, and so now you weren't kidnapped, and all that goes away. So he said, this is a girl from my church. He sends me a picture of her. He said, she was a member of our choir. She was at our 5.30 a.m. service this morning, and and she was just kidnapped. And I, I put out a prayer call on Facebook. We had thousands of people responding. We're praying, we're praying. It, it got a tremendous response. And I heard nothing from him for two days so I reached out to him again today. He said, brother, it's, he said, my heart is broken. He said, she appeared before the court. She was trembling, and she said, she's now a Muslim. So I don't know what they did to her or how they threatened her family, and she was obviously under, under pressure even in that moment. And he said, it's happening regularly. I don't think he meant in his district, I think he meant in the country, that it's happening pretty much on a daily basis. But this, friends, this is reality. Picture that's your daughter. Picture that's your sister. That this is reality. This is what people are facing around the world. And in many of these countries where the persecution is most intense, the church is growing. Here, let me show you something that Richard Wormbrand said. Richard Wormbrand, who is tortured for his faith, uh, tortured for Christ, not only an internationally best-selling book translated into dozens and dozens of language, languages. When I met with Pastor Wormbrand some years ago, I said, is it true that your book is the most translated book written in the 20th century? And he smiled. He goes, no, Agatha Christie novels are. But his was, I think, the most translated religious book written in the 20th century, distributed widely. He said this, persecution has always produced a better Christian, a witnessing Christian, a soul-winning Christian. Communist persecution has backfired and produced serious, dedicated Christians such as are rarely seen in free lands. These people cannot understand how anyone can be a Christian and not want to win every soul they meet. Uh, When you are in a situation of real opposition, when it's costly to follow Jesus, when there's a price to be paid for being a disciple, you you get a different quality person. What, What is the commitment level of someone who becomes a Navy SEAL versus the commitment level of someone who goes into the military because they're going to get their education paid for when they get out. Obviously, night and day. What's the commitment level of someone who may lose everything, may lose their job, may lose their family, may lose their life, coming to faith, versus someone who enjoys 
services at a church and the pastor's really good and funny and easy to listen to and it's good parking. You can get in and out within an hour and a quarter and got a great children's program. What's, what's the, the different level of commitment involved? I think you get my point. Then our American gospel where it's pretty much the greatest goal, God's greatest goal is that I'm happy and anything that does not contribute to my happiness is therefore not from God, whereas the biblical message is that God's goal is our holiness and what does not contribute to our holiness is not from God. And obviously, true holiness will produce true and lasting happiness. But our what's in it for me gospel, bypass the cross gospel, produces shallow believers. Decades ago, I said, many of us are so fat, we can't even get out the church door. Spiritually speaking, we, we just gorge ourselves, love this great teaching, this is cool, the latest, best, this, that. And we're not in spiritual shape at all. I wonder what would happen if there was a real cost attached to following Jesus in America. How many would fall away and how many would prove to be false converts? Many parts of the world, they don't have to ask that question because there is a cost associated. And and you don't get in unless you're serious. You don't make that commitment unless you're serious because it's too costly. Many Americans will say, well, then why would I follow Jesus? You know, because they're following him because he prospers them and does good for them and promotes them and makes them famous and you know, satisfies their desires. And if there's a cost involved, take up your cross, follow me. Well, why would I want to follow them? That's how far astray much of our American gospel message has gone. Uh, Look look at this quote from Lactantius. He is, or uh, I'm probably mispronouncing it, Lactantius, uh, what about third century apologist, early defender of the faith. He said, there is another cause why God permits persecutions to be carried out against us, that the people of God may be increased. So the more that there is persecution, the more it produces believers. It wakes up the church. Look, I I wrote an article early December, but I didn't release it until January, why a Biden presidency could be good for the Church of America. I wholeheartedly oppose so much of the direction of the Biden administration. I believe that there are real assaults to our liberties and things that could be very negative and dangerous for America under the Biden administration. But I also believe it could help wake up the church. Instead of us looking to the White House, we have to look to God. And there's more of a cost associated with following Jesus. Look at what Paul wrote in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, a famous passage of Scripture, and one that we're often comforted by. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We love that. But how about the next verse? And if children also heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed to us. Woo. If we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. Look at the words of, of Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, Matthew the 10th chapter, Jesus sending out his disciples to preach. Beginning verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and a father is child and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Amen, I tell you, you will never finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher 
and the slave like his master, if they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. Friends, these are sobering words. This is Jesus telling us that if the world hated him, the world persecuted him, the world killed him, the world defamed him, the world slandered him, we can expect the same treatment from a hostile world. It should not surprise us in the least. Friends, I'm not looking for persecution. I'm not trying to stir up persecution. I appreciate the liberties we have here in America, but friends, we better use them and we better get back to a biblical gospel. Otherwise, there could be real, real trouble ahead. All right, a few more scriptures and then we're going to go to your call. So anything you want to ask me, talk to me about, phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You know, friends, I've had the privilege of, of working with the church around the world, not in every country, but in many countries, and very closely in some countries where there's a lot of persecution, where there's danger, where we can't even go and preach in certain areas because of potential danger. Um, I've had threats against me in other countries. One country I was going to speak at, and, and we were told that there was chatter. You know, the security folks, national security, picked it up and, and told this national pastor for whom I was speaking in another country that, that there were potential threats that were going to come against me from Islamic terrorists. But I'm talking about people on the ground. I'm, I'm in and I'm out, right? I'm talking about people that live in these countries and, the, and friends who've lost their lives or been imprisoned. One of our own grads, we can't still to this day, even though it's, what, almost seven years, we can't give the details of this because it would endanger other workers. But one of our own grads was was martyred overseas by Islamic terrorists years ago because of the fruitfulness of the ministry that that they were doing. Friends, this is reality. This is reality. Uh, The situation in China is getting very, very bleak, very, very difficult there. Real heavy government crackdowns. The church continues to grow but real challenges. And then countries like North Korea, for years, that's been the, the worst-rated country in the world, the most dangerous country for a Christian to live. And, and the inhuman treatment of Christians there is, is beyond imagination, and yet people still follow Jesus. And, and it reveals the ugliness. It reveals the demonic nature of the opposition, the darkness of the opposition. And, and Jesus shines all the more in the midst of this. 866 348 7884. Before I go to the phones, just a couple more verses. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 15. He's been talking to his disciples. He's told them that he has chosen them here to be apostles. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18, Jesus says this. If oh, That's Matthew, just there we go. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. So Jesus speaking to us, telling us this. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but you are not of the world. Since I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then one more passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul is discussing his own life, verse 10, writing to Timothy, you, however, closely followed my teaching, manner of life, purpose, faithfulness, patience, love, perseverance, as well as persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and the Lord rescued me from them all, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Messiah Yeshua, and Messiah Jesus, will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there it is. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We don't look for it. We don't try to provoke it. We seek to be peacemakers rather than troublemakers. But if we really walk with Jesus, the world will oppose us. It will always be the case. Oh, we'll receive favor. We'll have people who are our enemies who become our friends. Certain times the government will honor and respect what we do, depending on how God-fearing the government is. But the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age, will oppose us. Face it. Accept it. Don't try to make your views palatable to, to a hostile world. So as, you, so as to avoid the persecution of the cross. In other words, sometimes we want to present things in such a way that when we're done, no one even knows what we said. I've watched some Christian leaders on TV sometimes and ask a point-blank question, and when they're done with their answer, I have no idea what they believe or where they stand. It's like, well, yeah, you want to avoid controversy, but you, you didn't make a statement. And Paul said if, if the, the trumpet sounds an uncertain note, t- tone, you know, who's going to respond? Was that a warning? Were they telling us, is danger coming or everything's safe for, was that just someone playing the trumpet? No, there's going to be clarity on our message. We use wisdom, grace, but there's going to be clarity and we will be hated for it. Accept it. I don't want to be hated because I'm obnoxious. I don't want to be hated because I'm foolish. I don't want to be hated because I'm a hypocrite. I don't want to be hated because I'm insensitive. But if I'm hated for Jesus, that's an honor. That's an honor because the world is treating me the way it treated him. All right, let's go to the phones, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Helen. Nope, we're not going to Helen. We're going to start there, but we're not. All right, tell you what, <clears throat> just another word or two, and then we will we'll go over to the phones. Uh, totally, completely changing subjects for a moment. 100% shift, okay? So we've been talking about persecution, talking about state of the American church, talking about the watered-down American gospel, read my books, How Saved Are We, among others, that address a lot of this. This is going all the way back to 1990, okay? <clears throat> totally changing subjects. On Thursday of this week, we are releasing a major statement. It is a prophetic standards statement. Uh, this has not been done on this level before. There are plenty of other ministries, organizations, those involved in prophetic ministry who have released standards and guidelines and things like that. This is different. This is different. This is going to represent wide parts of the charismatic Pentecostal church in America and in other nations. Uh, It is not just prophetic people signing it, but people in all different aspects of what we would call, quote, five-fold ministry, all right? And... uh, It is, uh, it's going to be released Thursday. We'll give you the website on Thursday as well. 
we've got, oh, somewhere in the mid-80s in terms of people signing on from denominational heads to people recognized as prophetic leaders to pastors to evangelists, different ones. And it is in response to the debacle of the failed Trump prophecies and the failed COVID prophecies and many charismatic leaders saying we need to have accountability and things like that. So that's, that's what's going to be happening on Thursday. And, uh, okay. One, so, so we'll, we'll share more about that. We'll give you the website. If you're a pastor leader, ministry leader, and you want to sign on after, so we'll have our initial signers. But then if you want to sign on afterwards, then, uh, by all means, uh, you'll be able to do that and add your name so we could have hundreds or thousands of signers over a period of time. But we felt several of us worked on this, then, then got input from other leaders. So it is an anonymous statement. In other words, it's not my statement or colleague's statement. This is the work of a number of leaders together being put out, saying there need to be standards, there needs to be accountability. We want to have freedom in the spirit. We want to cultivate uh, life in the spirit. We want to, to have an atmosphere where there can be spontaneous ministry and the prophetic gifts are recognized and the ministry of the prophet is recognized while at the same time calling for accountability, calling for godly standards, calling for ways for any believer to evaluate things, uh, calling for how do we address the internet phenomenon where I can just say, hey, I'm a prophet and I got this word and just put it out and it's unfiltered, it's untested and, and you don't know who I am and just how to deal with these kinds of things so that there can be uh, more righteousness and, and less reproach. Because look, here's the deal. To all my non-charismatic friends, uh, to all of you who don't believe that prophecy or tongues are for today, but, but we're together on other issues and, and you listen and, and we're in this together in the Lord, I feel bad that you get hurt because of the errors of some prominent charismatics because a lot of people just see that out there and they think the church or Christians or evangelicals or these believers, whatever it is, it makes everybody look bad. Now, of course, the sword cuts both ways. There could be a scandal among Baptists and then charismatics get blamed. But, but right now I'm saying that it, we are, as charismatic leaders, grieved over these things. Many of us for years have, have worked for standards of accountability and, and, and many others have, have modeled those within their own ministries and organizations. You just need a few rogue voices with enough prominence, and, and some that are just way out, and some that are blatantly false prophets. They're just deceivers, and others are just deeply deceived themselves, but they, they make everything look bad. So we're saying, hey, this is not who we are. This is, these are not our standards. This is not how we operate. Uh, I'm also going to be putting out a statement. This is going to be me personally, but I may do it in conjunction with other ministry leaders, and I'll probably save most of this for Thursday, but there are reports now that are just getting out there um, widely in the media, not, not just um, in the Jewish world, but now I see New York Post reporting this and, and others, that there was allegedly a Gentile Christian with his wife working in ultra-Orthodox parts of Jerusalem with allegedly forged documents claiming that they were actually Jewish. So they were secret believers who went in to missionize, claiming falsely to be Jewish. When the wife died of cancer, the community of ultra-Orthodox Jews helped raise tens of thousands of dollars for the family, only to find out 
that they're allegedly there with forged documents claiming to be Jews and they're not. That's very grievous. That's very grievous. And I, I want to say as an international leader in Jewish apologetics and reaching out to our Jewish people for salvation unashamedly, that that's not how we do it. That's not who we are. Maybe one thing, if someone is a secret believer, they, they come to faith, in other words, they're in that ultra-Orthodox community or, or you know, uh, certainly Islamic community or something, and they come to faith and they're just keeping their faith to themselves secretly for a time until they're ready to, to come out. Okay, that's one thing. I understand that. You know, and it's very difficult and they're weighing, losing everything, etc. It's another thing to go in claiming to be something you're not in a totally false way, forged documents. I, that's grievous, friends. We want to put a statement out. That's not who we are. All right, we'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. So we've opened up the phone lines for any subject of any kind. Yesterday, I didn't take a single call. We just focused on some intense issues in the society around us. Talked a lot about persecution and the challenges faced by believers around the world and now ready to take some calls. So let's go over to Seth in Linear, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Thanks for calling. Hey, Dr. Brown. Hey. It's an honor. Thank you. Just want to say I'm a pastor in North Carolina, and I appreciate the work you're doing for the body of Christ all over the world. And I guess you kind of hit on a subject that touched my heart a few minutes ago about the persecution of the church all over the mm-hmm. world, because I've done overseas mission works for years now and i get messages from different pastors of all the things they go through every day but i was want to ask you do you have any idea how we could wake up the american church today to really <laughs> get them to open their eyes to what's going on around us all right so let's let's just talk about this on a very practical level you're a pastor yourself right yes sir okay so how do you balance in your own congregation trying to wake up stir challenge get people aware of what's happening without getting where it's like every week is, is sounding the alarm. And, and in other words, there's just everyday life ministry, people going through challenging times. How do you personally balance that as a pastor trying to sound the alarm and light a fire while at the same time recognizing you've got people hurting and trying to do pastoral shepherding ministry? How do you work that out? I try to, um, make it known what's going on around us in the world, that there's a world, you know, beyond America, and the body of, body of Christ goes way well beyond America. Mm-hmm. And I try to also uh, encourage people to really pray. That's really been on my heart here lately, is to stir, have a prayer revival and stir and pray more, because I believe prayer is going to cause the next great awakening for America. That's kind of been my focus this year, is getting back to repentance and seeking God. But it's just like, <clears throat> I, I know this like a stupor has been over the church here lately. People's not really paying attention to some things going on. I just kind of wanted to get your input on that. Yeah, Anything yeah. I could do more myself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I appreciate what you're doing, and prayer is obviously at, at the heart and soul of, of all of it. So that's the first thing, that we have to give ourselves more to secret prayer. You know, Acts, the sixth chapter, 
the apostles raised up the, the ones to wait on the tables so they could give themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. So a lot of us are so busy in our own lives. My, my weakness is, is overcommitting and overworking, and, and I have to make sure that I pull back to be with the Lord and to seek him first and foremost for greater fire, passion, presence of God in my own life, hearing his voice more clearly, and then praying for others. So we start there, you know, that old prayer of Gypsy Smith when he was asked about how to pray for revival, which is, I draw a circle on the ground, I stand inside the circle, and then I ask God to revive everything in the circle. So we, we start there, key leaders that, that I work with, you know, I would, I would get them praying with you, you know, your leadership team or others that are, that are really key, and then uh, read stuff on revival, uh, watch stuff on revival. Uh, you know, you can just get online and look for lectures by J. Edwin Orr, uh, O-R-R, you know, a great revival historian of the last generation. And it's just very matter of fact, just going through things like, yes, that's what's supposed to happen. So think books that'll stir your heart on revival, videos, lectures, videos of God moving. So it's not just sounding the alarm about how crazy this world is around us and how messed up things are. That you have to do periodically. You gotta say, hey, look, hate to do it, but let's talk about what's happening in our school systems here. Let's talk about what's happening. In the, let's, you know, it's not a political thing, it's a spiritual thing. So you wake people up, but then give a vision of revival, a, a vision of what God can do, and get people hungry. Get people hungering and thirsting for more. And then doing what you're doing is super important, talking about the church in other parts of the world. Because, again, when you travel overseas, as I have, you know this, it, it does something to you. you. You see a reality. Like stuff I had always believed. It was things that when I read about persecuted church in decades past, when I read the Bible itself, it's like, yeah, this is normal. This is sacrifice and opposition and take up your cross. That's, that's normal. And then when I would go overseas and work with missionaries who were risking their lives for the gospel and work with native believers where it's just a given, they might die for following Jesus. Like, yeah, I knew it was supposed to be like this. I knew that was the, the real deal. And then you, you, you bring back that deeper quality. W what we can't do, and, and I, it, it's something you've got to be very sensitive to. I have to be as a traveling speaker and then with daily radio, then you as a local pastor. You can't beat people over the head all the time, like something's wrong, something's missing, we're not doing it. There are those times when the Holy Spirit comes with an intense repentance call and people are on their faces weeping and repenting. But otherwise there's that call, but then the vision, there's more. There's more that God wants to do. And that stirs people in a positive way as well. Uh, so those are some of the things. Awakening to what's happening in the world around us so that people feel the urgency. Uh, sharing uh, with the world around us, I mean here in America, the crazy situation that we're facing and that we're in. Uh, talking about believers in other parts of the world to inspire us, not condemn us. Uh, creating a deeper hunger for more. And then those that are hungry and thirsty, hey, let's go after God. So you give the invitation to go deeper. You don't condemn those that don't want to or that aren't at that place yet, but you keep giving that opportunity. Hey, we're just going to open the building and pray. And we're going to be, we're going to watch, you know, some, some revival messages or some services, you know, and, and we're going to open the building if you want to come great. And, and then if something starts to ignite, then you breathe on it. You, you breathe on it. And, 
And um, those are those are keys. But to the extent you carry that in your own life, it's going to be contagious. So c- can I just pray with you, Seth? Yes, sir. That would be an honor, sir. Yeah. Uh, and I hope those, I mean, I didn't tell you anything new, but hopefully just hearing it together is helpful. Lord, I, I pray for my brother. We pray for him right now for that fire, for that passion, for that hunger, for that thirst, for a greater awareness of who you are and a greater desire to know you and experience you and make you known so others can know you and experience you. May, may he become a flaming fire. May it spread to others. May his church become a center of revival and visitation. May hunger rise in his congregation, in his region. And everyone listening that's of like heart, may it be so, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, Seth. Let us know how we can be of help to you in, in the future. Appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Gloria in San Marcos, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, good good afternoon. Um, my question is pretty, I hope it's simple. Anyways, um, in Genesis 3, verse 1, it says that the now the Nakash was more, uh, some versions will kind of say it's uh, more crafty than mm-hmm. any other uh, beast of the field. But the same word, a room, is kind of used in the Proverbs as prudent. And then if you look also at when it says that the man and his wife were naked and they were not, they were not ashamed, it still comes up at the same word, our room. So how does, can you kind of give a little more light into the, the Hebrew um, context of the word as to why in some places it means naked, in another place, why does it mean yeah. uh, prudent, and in another place it means crafty or... Right, so there, um, there, there are two different words. The word for naked is arom. And then in a plural form, it would, it would change to arumim. But uh, naked is a different word. So that's, that's totally separate. It's, it's followed by telling us that the, the nachash w- was arum. There's a play on words there. Uh, but no, those are, those are two separate words. Uh, and just like in English, you have wind and you have wind, right? They're spelled exactly the same but pronounced differently and you only know which is which by context, right? If I said, right. okay, what, what is that? Pronounce that, W-I-N-D. You'd say, well, it could be wind, it could be wind. But in context, it's, it's totally clear. Uh, the wind is blowing really hard. You don't say the wind is blowing really hard or, or there's a real wind in the road here. So in context, uh, even without vowels, you would know one is naked. That's, that's clear. Um, the other word, uh, it, it, it is two sides of it. In other words, the same word arum can be used for crafty, it can be used for kind of skillful and adept in a negative way, or crafty, but the positive side of it, having, having a certain wisdom or adroitness. So if, if, if I'm looking, say, at a, a, a lexicon, and I'll, I'll just pull this up for a second, you'll see that it comes out of kind of the same root concept. You know, you, you have words that can be used for persuade or seduce or deceive, and it's the same Hebrew word. And it, it's, it's all a matter of, of context. So that's the same thing. That's the same word, and, and it could be a, you know, you're really sharp. It could be negative or it could be positive. And um, so if, if I look, for example, Genesis 3.1, um, and, and the serpent there, uh, Arum, yeah, cunning, 
uh, or clever. Those are the two definitions that a dictionary will give. Uh, cunning versus clever. So two sides of the same coin. And, and um, it, it's a good word used in good context and a bad word used in bad context. But, but even there, the serpent's very clever, right? Clever, but it, because this is Satan speaking through him, the cleverness is used for bad purposes. So we're using the cleverness for good purposes or bad purposes. That would be the basic question. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, ma- it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and plus it clears up a lot of things. Because I have watched a, an Orthodox rabbi uh, talk about how the word or room is the same word that is used to describe uh, the man and his wife being naked. And he tried to uh, put it into a context where he was saying that it should have read that the snake was also more naked than all of them. Um, obviously, yeah. I know where he was going. I don't kind of agree with it because even where he ended up, he would have ended up saying something like, okay, um, you know, the, the Mashiach is the same as the, 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 the Nakash. Yeah, all, all, yeah, all, all that, all that is, that. yeah, he may have, that may be completely midrashic, homiletical. And again, one is Arom, which is naked. Then in plural, the form becomes Arumim, but it, the singular is Arom. So it's Arom versus Arum. And originally they're two, two separate roots. They, they may be written the same now, but they're two separate roots. So that was just somebody homiletically preaching and trying to make some spiritual application, but w- without foundation. Uh, you got Christian preachers who do that. You get rabbis that do that, but uh, yeah, with, without, without scriptural foundation. All right. Hey, thank you for the, the call. We'll be right back with your questions. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. 866-34-TRUTH is... The number to call, and let's go straight back to the phones. Uh, we'll start with Michael in Corpus Christi, Texas. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can. Uh, sir, uh, just recently uh, I saw the movie The Pianist, uh, you know, with Adrian Brody, the movie about the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And I, I watched these movies, uh, you know, several of them. And uh, anyway, I have to ask, Dr. Brown, I know, I know we lost, you know, approximately 6 million Jews, but I, I still have to ask the question, just how hated were they? Uh, if I was a citizen in Nazi Germany in 1942, whether I was German or maybe even a Jew, and I decided to kill another Jew just for the fun of it, what, would I be prosecuted? What, would German police arrest me? Would Nazis come to my defense and say, hey, he did the right thing? I mean, I'm just curious. Just how hated were they? Were there regular police in Nazi Germany? Right. So it, it's a question that's not normally asked because because of the idea that the, the, popula- the populace as a whole was not as fully aware of what was going on. But of course, laws were being passed. So, so here, here's the deal. To my knowledge, it was not widespread for people to just go out and kill a Jew because they wanted to, uh, because the Nazis were still all about law and order, right? So they were yeah. going to do what they were going to do, and it, you'd still be breaking the law. Even, even if you killed someone that they hated and despised or killed someone on the way to the concentration camp, that wasn't your role. That's their role. 
So with their law and order system, no, that was not happening a lot uh, before or, or during the Holocaust. Now, Jews were increasingly demonized. And as a result of World War I, restrictions were put on Germany that were so unbearable because of Germany being the aggressor in World War I that it almost made a, a, a revolt against that inevitable. And as their economy was, was tanking and, and then Hitler was rising, we well, got to blame somebody. So the Jews became looked at as the parasites and, and were increasingly blamed. Um, and that could be one reason why the populace did not fight back on their behalf more. But a, a big issue was just the, the fear tactics of the Nazis, that you stand up against them and, and, and you're going to suffer a horrific death or your family will or, or torture beyond imagination. So, okay, so regular citizens still couldn't take the law into their own hands? No, not, not to my knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Now, however, I, I want to go further. Uh, Post-Holocaust, like a country like Poland, for example, um, I, I know of these accounts firsthand. I mean, I, I met someone that this was his, his own situation. He's, he's with the Lord now. Uh, but I met him and his, and his son is actively in Jewish ministry to this day. So this happened in other countries. I don't know how much it happened in Germany, but I know it happened in other European countries where after the Holocaust, Jewish survivors went back to their old villages. And in some cases, their homes were still empty or, or they were able to stay somewhere. They, and and the, the surrounding people, like Catholic neighbors in Poland, were so incensed that these Jews had survived, that they went out to try to kill them. So for sure, you, you did have that kind of thing going on, that the, for example, in Poland, the eyewitnesses would testify that, say, in an Easter service, that, that the priest would so incite the people uh, about what these evil Jews did and killed Christ that they would then go out and, and just in a mob kill Jews. The pogroms in and Russia. No police, and no police would arrest them, huh? Uh, no, generally speaking, no. The pogroms in Russia at, at the turn of the last century would be the same kind of thing. They'd often be provoked by the religious authorities and go out and, and wreak havoc, and the police would basically look the other way. To the extent it happened in Germany, I, I, from my understanding, it was less so because of the iron fist of the Nazis and because of them carrying out their murderous plans. But in other countries, uh, Jews were fair game at different times, tragically. Yeah. Okay, it's, I, I yeah, was just curious. So, so Germany, they, it was their role. They, they would possibly uh, arrest ordinary citizens and tell them, hey, that's for us to do, not you, right? Yeah, I, I, again, I don't know. I, I, am, I have not, in, in the Holocaust studies that I've done over the decades, I have not read about that phenomenon a lot. I have not okay. heard it or seen it. Therefore, it's an my question, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it definitely is, sir. But my assumption, again, is that with the Nazis doing the death work and your average German citizen more or less looking the other way while it was happening, um, either not knowing about it or just choosing, I'm looking the other way, some even being complicit, that it, they didn't just go around killing Jews random. To my knowledge, it was more SS Nazis uh, carrying out their, their murderous acts with the approval of the people or with the silence of, of the people. Hey, thanks for asking. Uh, let's see. All right. Uh, we'll go to Cary, North Carolina. Greg, welcome to the line of fire. Hello. Hello. 
Hey, Dr. Brown, how you doing? I have a question about Zechariah 5. Yeah. Um, in relation to the scroll or the roll that is listed in there. Yeah. I wanted to see what that represents. A buddy, young brother of mine in the Lord was asking me about it, and I was like, I really don't know. I didn't know if it was uh, like a dual relating to the uh, future prophecy, like during Revelation, or if it's just in their time of um, Zechariah's time or what. I yeah, it's, it's uh, I'm sitting here smiling when I saw when I saw Zechariah five, I thought, yeah, that's, it's it's a difficult passage. Um, it, it seems to be pointing to a judgment that came in the past. Um, so he looks up, he sees a flying scroll. Uh, it, it's the curse which goes out over the whole land for everyone who was stolen is for uh, is is forbidden on one side of the scroll is gone unpunished. Everyone who's sworn falsely is is forbidden on the other side of it is gone unpunished. Um, it, it seems to be speaking of a, of a judgment that came in the ancient world. Now, prophecy being what it is, it can often have a dual meaning. It can often have a future fulfillment, but it's, it, it, it's not clearly spelled out. It's not one of these things where it's like, I can tell you, here's where this happened in history. Here's where the thing fulfilled. It, it's much more uh, nebulous and ambiguous. So, um, Again, like when you have judgment on ancient Babylon, that really happened in the ancient world. But then Revelation hints and points to a future destruction on a future Babylon, right? So sometimes these passages, you say, okay, here's how it would have applied in Zechariah's day, and we see a future fulfillment. But I see this primarily as something that, that applied to, to his day or to the generations around that time, as opposed to a future prophecy. I know a lot of us, when we read the Bible, we're thinking of all, like, it's, it's all for me today. But much of it was written to the people back then, and then we learn from that. So it applies to us as we learn from it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's not just a young believer asking that and you wondering about it. We all scratch our heads over some of these uh, because there's not more information given to us. So we really don't know what the scroll or the roll represents then, right? No, no, not beyond what that, that it's a word of judgment. In other words, that he sees, here's a judgment from the Lord going out. The prophets, yeah, on that level, for example, you can look in Ezekiel 2 and 3, and Ezekiel is, is given a, a scroll by the Lord to eat, and he eats it, and it, it's the message of the Lord. Uh, so sometimes the prophets would receive a message, and they'd see something written on a scroll. Uh, Revelation the 10, the 10th chapter, the same thing with the Apostle John, that he eats the scroll, uh, it's, again, prophecies of doom and judgment about different kingdoms. The same with Ezekiel. Jeremiah chapter fifteen sixteen. he says, Your words were found, and I did eat them. So the word, the prophetic word he gets metaphorically, he eats it, takes it in. So that's all it is. In other words, it's prophetic revelation. It'd be like I hold a billboard in front of you saying, The Lord says America must repent. And you see that billboard, and now it just enters into you. That's how it is with the scroll. So that I can tell you about the scroll in terms of how prophets would receive messages, this being one of them, you know, in a vision. But beyond that, all, that's, all that we know of it is what's written there. So it was some judgment going forth for sinners at that time. Okay. Thank you very much. You are, you are very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, let me just step back for a minute and say this. <clears throat> uh, I, I devoted years, obviously, to learning the ancient languages culture, background, and especially for Old Testament, less so for New Testament. Uh, 
but there's still only so much that we know. In other words, there are passages that remain difficult. There are passages that say we don't know exactly what the Hebrew meant here or the Greek, or we're not exactly sure of the historical context. Now, it's not a lot, but it does occur. You know, there's a verse in Ezekiel about the people who put the branch to their nose. There's a lot of speculation as to what that means. Or in Zephaniah, the priests who leap over the threshold. I think I have a good idea of what that means, but it's, there's speculation with it. Uh, there are things like that, that as much as you study background culture, or even early church and background or, or ancient Jewish world for background to the New Testament, and my friend Craig Keener is probably the world's leading expert on uh, backgrounds to the New Testament, things like that. It's not the leading expert, one of the leading experts. And, and there's a ton, like I'll ask him a question, there's like a ton of data, a ton of information, yet still there's speculation. Not sure about this, could be this, could be that. But the key thing is, we're reading the word Father, speak to me, give me insight. How do I apply this to my life? And, and, and for the most part, Start from, you know, verse here or there that challenges. We can, okay, I can get something here. Maybe there's a genealogy or just a detailed description somewhere, but the great bulk of what we're reading will be able to prayerfully make application in our lives. So, right, we'll be back with you tomorrow, friends. Remember to visit us at askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Do you get my emails? Do you, if not, sign up today. You don't know what you're missing. God bless you. Another program powered by the Truth Network.